Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is our videocast episode 77, podcast episode 67 for the week ending early Thursday, April 8th. And we're ending early this week. Uh, we're down in Tampa. The, our girls, uh, age six and eight, have a uh, major swim meet, and we flew down last night. Um, Want to thank uh AZ from CGTN America for inviting me on last night to d discuss the jobs report. We couldn't do it due to travel, but uh, they've got some strange boats here in Tampa. This was a view last night when we got in from uh, Jackson's Bistro Bar and Sushi on, on the water in downtown Tampa. And this thing is like a motorized tiki hut you can see here. Uh, so that was uh, very interesting. And like last time we were down here for a swim meet in, uh, I guess it was early February, we got down here, we saw all the Super Bowl stuff, we're like, we're here, we might as well just go, uh, and we had a great time, witnessed history. Well, this time, this is strange, but my wife and I looked at each other when we saw all the banners in the airport. Guess what's going to be taking place on Saturday and Sunday after the meet is over? Well, you guessed it. WrestleMania number 37. It's going to be at the same stadium we were at for the um, Super Bowl. So I've never been to a wrestling match, never actually really desired to go to a wrestling match, but you only live once. So we're here. Uh, we'll, we'll hit that on Sunday night after the swim meets and see how it goes. We're close enough that these guys can sweat on us. Uh, now they're expecting thunder showers, so we'll see. It's outdoors and it's socially distanced, but uh, that might be one for the uh, for the memory book for sure. Nonetheless, uh, getting right down to it, we're going to start with our media spots, and then we've got a lot of great stuff to cover. And uh, want to first off thank um, Medicine and Shivani Kumarasan who reached out on Monday morning uh, regarding the market was up. And um, really what had set the stage for that was the blowout jobs report on Friday, unemployment down to 6%, non-farm payrolls beat expectations, surging to 916,000. And my quote was, if you'd said a year ago we'd be where we are now, no one would have believed you. Uh, you know, we, we did intimate similar things. Uh, certainly we were ahead of the pack when we were talking about 5 to 6% GDP growth over the summer, uh, not quite a year ago, and uh, here we are today. And then um, the other point that I made was, on the one hand, you have concerns about potential interest rate uh, rising sooner than, than uh, promised as it relates to Jay Powell, uh, having to potentially raise before his 2024-2023 promise. But at the same time, there's starting to be a bit of understanding that perhaps earnings estimates are too low. Obviously, they've had to come up effectively every single week since uh, Q4. And uh, many people, um, credible people, still think estimates are still too low. I am in that camp. They're, they're at 175 for 2020. Those could go high. I've quoted Jim Paulson. He was also on this week talking about it again that maybe, you know, right now 2022 is at 200 bucks or $202 a share for the S&P 500 earnings estimates. He thinks that could potentially get done in 2021. And I don't think that's as outlandish as it sounds. And if that's the case, you're effectively trading at 20 times 
uh, current year, which is you know not terribly out of line, and particularly as it relates to rates, uh, it's very very reasonable. So uh, something to keep our eye on, which we're going to touch base on in this in this podcast video cast. Uh, also want to thank uh, later in the day, Chibuke Ogu reached out and um, he was also kind of, you know, why is the market up so much again? And it was effectively set up by the jobs report on Friday. And uh, and the other thing with the rate of change with the 10-year yield is slowed. And that's created a runway for some of the left behind sectors in recent weeks, like tech and other yield sensitive areas like utilities. So utilities, staples and big pharma took off, uh, for, you know, from uh, late February when we first put out the article, first week of March. Uh, in the last five weeks and now in the last week week and a half tech is starting to catch up all four of those groups benefit from the moderation in the rate of change in the 10-year yield so we're going to talk about that a bit more in this uh in this podcast video cast uh also want to thank uh oh the guardian put me in an article um regarding GameStop and you know they were talking about the equity raise which was long overdue the the good news is they're going to have more money to invest in their digital revolution the bad news is uh they'll get some dilution and that's why the stock was down that day uh today they appointed uh Ryan um uh Cohn as um chairman which was long overdue he's certainly recruited quite a lot of people but as we've said in recent podcasts you know, whatever it's trading at 160 or 190 bucks, it, it makes no difference. It's priced in a lot of good news that may or may not come to pass. Time will tell. Um, so that's the story. And then Shibuke Ogu over at Reuters again called me uh, just now, effectively before this call. And um, I don't think that one's up yet, but you can just go to his link, Reuters.com slash journalist slash Chibuke, C-H-I-B-U-I-K-E dash Ogu, and that should be up later tonight. Now, I want to kick off with, uh, first off, the Ask Me Anything question of the week. This comes from uh, John Croner. He owns all the newspapers in uh, Ohio, the review, the review newspapers, and he's been a, a loyal listener for quite some time. Uh, we're appreciative of that. And uh, he says, Tom, continue to appreciate the good info you share daily and especially your weekly stock market commentary and weekly video. My question today is how important do you feel it is to be active in the equities you hold? I'm referring to voting the ballots for the annual meetings. I currently hold shares in over 500 equities and it is time consuming to vote each ballot. I realize my actual vote will not affect the outcome in any way, yet sometimes the ballots give good insight into the companies do you feel it is good time invested thank you and god bless um okay so i think there's two important things that will be helpful to everyone listening uh, number one is um it depends on the size of my position whether i vote the ballots i try to vote the ballots uh, as much as i can and i do think to your point, reading the proxy is valuable information and you should read most of the public filings for your holdings. Now that's the one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is holding 500 individual stocks is not really gonna help you. And you're running another business. I, you know, 
candidly, if I was going to own 500 stocks, I would own the S&P 500. They're effectively the, the top 500 stocks. So it would save you a lot of time, a lot of headache, and probably a lot of fees by just buying an index ETF fund and get rid of all the uh, 500 stocks that you own individually because you really can't outperform uh, you know, sans leverage, um, but you know, with that diluted of a portfolio, uh, unless of course, you know, five of the 500 make up 40% of the weight and the rest you just have as placeholders to keep an eye on them. That's another story, but that just seems like an awful large portfolio. Um, I think, Charlie Munger's got three stocks in his portfolio at the Review Journal. It's like Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and then a little bit of, uh, I think he just bought some $37 million of Alibaba. And he, he probably has some of that BYD that he's held forever, the Chinese battery maker. But, you know, three or four stocks. So um, I would kind of encourage you, you know, albeit you don't want to incur tax liability. So if you've bought all these and you're just holding them, you don't want to start selling them if, if they're in a taxable account just to consolidate into an S&P 500 fund. That's not going to help you. But if they're in a um, you know tax-advantaged account, uh, and again, this is opinion, not advice. Talk to your financial planner. But, but you just... If you're owning 500 individual stocks for fun and you just like to watch 500 stocks, that's fine. If you're looking to outperform, it's it's effectively impossible unless of course like i said you know a handful make up 40 50 percent of the portfolio then then that's fine and then the others aren't really helping you they're just costing you time and attention based on what you're telling me you know it's not going to really make a difference whether you vote or not unless again some of those are highly concentrated or highly meaningful to to your portfolio performance then you certainly want to want to um uh, vote them, you want to read the proxies, and I would maybe aim to narrow that down a little bit over time if you're looking to do a bit better than than the general indices. If you're just having fun and you like to own them, then, you know, have at it. It's, it's the American dream, and you're welcome to own a piece of as many businesses as, as you like. But uh, so, so generally, no, if they're not meaningful, you don't have to vote. But my general sense is if you own individual stocks with the intent to outperform, you really need to shave that down considerably and focus on, you know, <laughs> like like the cliche, the few things that make 80% of the difference, you know, the few stocks that you can really just hone in on, read all the public filings, vote your proxies, and be actively involved. So hope that helps. Moving right along to Tom Lee. He had a lot of good things to say this week. Uh, first off, he is calling for uh, about a 3% rally in April. Part of that has to do with seasonality. He also makes the point that institutions have raised almost $200 billion of cash since the start of the year. So there's not euphoria among active managers. And uh, we saw this week the National Association of Active Investment Managers, while the market was ripping up, they got down to 52% equity exposure, which is dramatically underweight. And we'll see later that they had to just pile on as the new print came out today um, after we put out our article. And now they're, they're chasing up again. So um, $200 billion of cash. He says that that's huge firepower. His goal, his uh, target is 4,200 before the end of the month. That is a bold call. Um, and his basic premise is that 
uh, institutions are sitting cash and there's so much skepticism on this market, we could see a big chase and that could mark the high for the year. Uh, and he says it's not his base case, but uh, you'd have to consolidate the gains if they did hit 4,200. And I think he had said 4,300 a couple weeks ago. So that's a, that's a really big call and certainly possible if we do get a blow off. The other thing to keep in mind is you had Tom DeMarc out this week a couple days ago, and he's kind of a market timer, but you know, a lot of major firms use his research, a lot of major hedge funds. Um, you know, he had called for uh, 39.27 uh, in, in uh, I think December or something, and then he said we were gonna crash. Uh, we hit 39.27 and then we just kept blowing right through it. So it doesn't always work, but uh, you know, he's, he's better than a coin flip and he's right you know, more often than he's not and he, he's lasted decades. So you always wanna listen when he comes out with stuff. Uh, and it's just, you know, a tiny piece of the puzzle. You, you, it's a mosaic of data that you're always analyzing and digesting, but his target is 3190, 30, I'm sorry, 4139. So that's kind of in line with Tom Lee, who's at 4200 plus. Uh, he's also saying that this is day 11 of 13 in what they call a combo, and you have to have a higher close and, um, we didn't hit that in the last two. We may have hit one today, so that would be day 12 of 13. So he's basically saying that if these things line up and we hit 41.39, then watch out below, and his support is at 3,900. But again, that's not a major you know, jaw-dropping correction, even if we did that. He's looking at 33.959 on the Dow, but he thinks that even if those uh, top out in the near term a bit higher than here, uh, he sees 347 on the QQQ, which is the NASDAQ, which is a lot higher. So, uh, you know, I think, I think these are both reasonable thoughts that there could be a little more gas in the tank in the near term, which I'm gonna talk about more detailed in my article and why I am of that view. And it's of completely different metrics than what, what these guys are looking at. But it's nice when you have a thesis and it aligns with you know multiple smart thinkers and it lines up with different data points. That's also very helpful if it's not just everyone thinking the same thing for the same reasons. So what we're talking about here is um, the second thing that he said was in addition to the funds raising uh, $200 billion of cash, there's another $4.5 trillion of firepower on the sidelines and that comes in the form of money markets. So here it is, 4.5 trillion that will carry in. That's um, cash balances of institutional money managers at $3 trillion, the highest since June of 2020. Uh, and that's uh, against 2.764 trillion at the start of 2021. And the rest, 1.5 trillion, is retail money market cash. So 4.5 trillion equals tons and tons of firepower on the sidelines. This bodes well for April equity gains. And everyone knows April is a very strong month of the year, uh, seasonally. So a lot of these things are pointing in the right direction. And so far, we're seeing that. And what you needed to see for that to happen 
was the heavyweights in the indices tech starting to awaken out of their slumber, which we talked about in the last two weeks. We'd see some pockets of tech start to uh, perk up, and they certainly have, uh, and it's, it's kind of all aligning from that standpoint. The other thing that uh, Tom Lee tweeted out was uh, Joe Weisenthal, the stalwart over at uh, Bloomberg, he writes some great stuff, and he has a podcast called Odd Lots that has great subjects from time to time. The he, What he basically puts out, Joe uh, Weisenthal, is how this chart right here, we've had dramatic underinvestment in infrastructure since 1990. So effectively, um, on balance, you know, for 30 years, but dramatic underspending, you know, relative to the long-term trend since uh, 2010 for the last decade. And what, um, basically what Tom pointed out was that um, 2021 is a post-war reconstruction period, U.S. infrastructure spending will boom, Data below argues this is long overdue. That's what the charts that I just pointed to from uh, Joe Weisenthal. And the takeaway for Tom Lee is that cyclicals will become the new growth stocks. Uh, and I agree with that. More so on the basis of that's what happens in the first eight to nine quarters of every new cycle, and uh, which has been our pound the table thesis for the last you know, nine months, if, for those of you who have been following us, 12 months now, uh, if you've been following us. Um, but this is just confirmatory, you know, of the 2.3 trillion, give or take 15 to 20% is actual infrastructure, like, you know, stuff that falls on your foot and it hurts, roads, bridges, that type of stuff. The rest is different types of spending and, and things that are not technically infrastructure, but and questionable whether they have long-term investment benefit like in infrastructure spend does or not, but it's it's stimulus nonetheless. And um, certainly this visual of the underinvestment in infrastructure and the need to play the catch-up al aligns with our general view, which is consistent with the new business cycle of the first two, three years, cyclicals outperform, and this would this would all align. So again, when different data points from different places fit into the mosaic of why you're thinking the way you're thinking, that's 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 always helpful. And obviously you always want to look at the data that, that disproves what you're looking at and then determine whether or not it's valid so that you're always, you know, arguing the other side to consistently recheck your theses. Um, so that's that. And that was very helpful. Uh, this was a great article. You know, it's interesting. I, you know, it, it's like we put this stuff out the week after we put out the uh, last week of February and first week of March notes on that we were shifting aggressively into utilities, big pharma and consumer staples. The next Sunday cover story was, uh, you know, ut about utilities on Barron's. And then the week after the next cover was about Big Pharma trading at a big discount. And then uh, this week, uh, just on this weekend, the cover was consumer staples might have been le left out of the stock rally. So so everyone's catching on and 
why I always say Barron's is the greatest publication in the financial service. These guys are willing to, and gals are willing to take contrarian stands when the market is chasing other things. They're looking at what's left behind and um, it's, they, they just provide a tremendous amount of value. So we've been ahead of the curve on this. I really like this article by Jake, Jacob Sonenshine. And he says that consumer staple stocks have significantly lagged behind the broader markets rally over the past year. Now is a good time to scoop up these stocks, according to Morgan Stanley. And we've been doing just that. Um, if history provides a guidebook, consumer staples, which see stable earnings in ec any economic environment, have underperformed the broader market as well as consumer discretionary stocks. That's because discretionary companies see an outsized benefit when households have more money to spend as the economy heats up. Since March 23rd, 2020, the bear market bottom, the Vanguard staples has risen 46% short of the S&P gaining 76%. So it's underperformed by 30%. Uh, since the V bottom. Now, meanwhile, uh, consumer discretionary companies focused on travel, leisure, restaurant, entertainment spending have seen their shares more than double over the same period, um, which includes Amazon uh, is up 93%, driving the strong discretionary performance over the vaccine-led reopenings and pent-up consumer demand. In a research note published on Monday, Morgan Stanley noted a similar trend during the financial crisis. During the market's initial recovery, consumer discretionary stocks beat staples by almost twofold, which is what just happened. Um, but that that relative outperformance tends to peak shortly thereafter, as it did in 2010, about a year into the new bull market, uh, which is where we are right now. Staples trumped the discretionary sector for the next three years until 2013. We're at that point in the cycle, the Morgan Stanley strategist said, as they upgraded staples and downgraded discretionary. Uh, the fundamental driver of the move into staples, the strategist note, is that the rise in economic activity is showing signs of slowing down. Personal income has recently been running at its pre-pandemic level, excluding government payments. According to economists at Morgan Stanley, the bank strategist said investors have already recognized that growth rate of personal income coming out of the pandemic has probably peaked. That should lead investors to favor companies that maintain their revenue and earnings trajectories in any economic environment, such as large cap consumer staples. And I think that's absolutely right. S&P consumer staple stock trades at about 21 times forward earnings. In comparison, discretionary names trade at 37 times. Hefty premium to the S&P 500, 22 times forward. And um, household product makers like Kimberly Clark, which we've talked about in recent weeks, is an example of the value that can be found in staples. The stock trades at a roughly 20% discount to the S&P 500 average. It may have a limit to upside as near-term earnings are only expected to grow in the low single digits in percentage terms. But if investors pour money into consumer staples, stocks like Kimberly Clark stand to benefit despite their relatively weak earnings growth. In the near term, watch for some rebalancing into some staples names that have been left behind. So we've talked about this over and over. Um, we were on uh, Liz Clayman's show on Fox talking about soup and cereal, Campbell's and Kellogg. And then on this podcast, we went into detail how they're actually snack companies. And sure enough, this week, the data was out. Uh, top 10 snack brands per Piper's new teen survey. Pepsi has number one with Lay's, but number two, 
very few people know Campbell's Soup owns Goldfish. That got the number two spot of the teens. Number three spot, very few people know, Kellogg owns Cheez-Its. Uh, so that was the third most popular brand. And you go down the list, General Mills uh, owns Nature Valley. Kellogg's also owns Pringles. So it's not just cereal that you don't like, it's snacks that you do like. So think about these companies. And I said on one of our podcasts, all Campbell has to do to increase the stock price by 30% is change the name of their company from Campbell Soup to Campbell Foods and the thing will gain 30% overnight. And, uh, and that's exactly what we're seeing here. So expect more good news from that front and, um, and we'll take that. Now, US companies are expected to see their strongest profit growth in nearly 20 years after a downward revisions were too aggressive. We've talked about this every single week. Earnings, uh, S&P earnings are expected to rise 6% in the first quarter. According to FactSet, earnings are starting late next week. We start off with the banks and energy early in the game. So that's gonna be very important for the cyclical trade. Uh, energy and material sectors are on track to post double digit increases in earnings. And again, this is in line with Jim Paulson's thesis over at Luthold that um, estimates are still too low and we could see close to $200 for 2021, never mind 2022. So this is all good news. This was a great chart out from uh, Standard & Poor's, Thompson, FactSet, and Credit Suisse. Um, and this was, a, this was uh, Sam Rowe over at Yahoo was quoting Jonathan Golub at Credit Suisse, and he's basically showing that the reason um, the stock market has risen in the last, you know, basically nine months is not because of multiple expansion, it's because earnings have continually been uh, revised upwards. So the multiple stayed relatively static, the earnings are what has been growing, which is why the stock market has been growing in price, and that trend is presumed to now continue and it still may be underestimated. We're gonna get a lot more color starting in a couple of weeks with guidance moving forward. If Jamie Dimon's letter is a sampling of things to come, he was very optimistic in his annual letter to shareholders this week. Uh, when, and he was very pessimistic at the bottom in March. If you recall, he felt that this could uh, last a lot longer. They took a lot more reserves than anyone could have anticipated. So, um, so it's, it's just good to see. The jobs report last week, again, it blew the doors off. This table from CNBC uh, and the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows where all the jobs came and it's leisure and hospitality. You're seeing this week that fast food companies are having to hold parties to hire people. The IHOPs of the world are trying to hire 10,000 people back with the, with the uh, restaurant reopenings. Taco Bell has to throw parties because effectively people are getting paid more from the government on extended unemployment than Taco Bell or IHOP could ever pay them in a million years. So they're having to compete to labor. And this is what I've said, this is gonna be the first sign of inflation is going to be in wages. It did not show up in last week's blockbuster report. Uh, um, average hourly earnings were down, I think a 10th of a percent. So, so far so good, but that will be the first trigger that inflation may not be transitory because wages are stick are sticky. Uh, that's that's just the way it works. So so far so good. Coast is clear, but that's the number one metric that we're looking for to measure inflation. Nothing uh, else is 
nearly as important. Um, so leisure and hospitality gain, government gain, construction gain, that's good to see. Professional and business services, manufacturing gained 53,000 jobs, that was nice to see, and so on. Now, here's another thing that's really interesting. This is from Bloomberg, Lou Wang. Hedge funds see something in the reflation trade that they don't like. Skepticism underscores a lack of confidence in the economy. Bank of America sees caution as the reason why the value rotation will continue. While wagering on an economic rebound has been the stock market's biggest bet since the November presidential election, one group of investors has hung onto its chips. And despite a rally of at least 40% in energy and financial shares over the last five months, which we were ahead of the curve if you've been with us for a little while, uh, on average, uh, hedge funds on average have steadfastly shunned stocks in the reflation trade, in favoring instead companies seen as resilient during an economic slowdown. Their exposure to cyclical shares sits at one of the lowest levels in a decade relative to defensive ones industry uh, data compiled by Bank of America show. So um, this basically shows their cyclical exposure is at a decade low. Cyclicals, uh, energy, industrials, materials, etc. And client data at Morgan Stanley show a similar if less pronounced pattern. After peaking near the end of 2020, the industry's net exposure to the reflation strategy has retreated to the 78th percentile over the last 12 months, according to the firm's prime brokerage unit. What's driving the aversion isn't obvious. One theory is that hedge funds aren't buying into the return to normal narrative, despite the rollout of vaccines. Last year, when retail investors rushed to hunt bargains and beaten down groups like airlines and hotels, professional speculators were hesitant to chase the pandemic-ravaged companies, which is why they underperformed. By the way, same thing happened. New data came out. I saw a post yesterday. The average long-short hedge fund last month was was down 7.5% last month, which is just how how could that possibly happen? Well, how it happened was they kept buying what they love instead of what works, which was tech. So they kept buying it down. And sure enough, as you saw in the National Association of Active Investment Managers, their equity exposure was down to 53% while the market was going up. And, uh, and now they finally got the bounce in tech and they're all out and they have to chase back up. So I think uh, what this is saying is they're making the same mistakes with cyclicals and value, they're dramatically underweight. And that's what Tom Lee is talking about when he says these reflation stocks, uh, you know, energy banks, et cetera, over the next year or so are gonna become the new growth stocks because the amount of chase they're gonna have to put into it to catch up to their benchmarks as these things keep getting away from them is material. And then you look at all the cash they have on the sidelines on top of it. So it's just a constant, again, what we've, we've emphasized is Stop paying attention to the general indices. Start paying attention to the rallies under the surface and the rotations that are taking place right under the hood and not in, in plain sight. So this is another example. And um, the conclusion here was such skepticism bodes well for these stocks that are underowned and traded at lower multiples relative to earnings or book value, uh, according to the firm strategist led, led by Savita Subram. Subramanian and quote hedge funds are yet to embrace rotation to value which leaves room for increased positioning in the coming months so um, again just confirmatory of what we've been laying out for many months and um, 
that's that. Uh, this is from Carlton English Bank, uh, one of my favorite bank journalists over at Barron's. Bank earnings are coming. We're only halfway through the rally. And uh, so bank stocks measured by the KBE ETF, she says, are up 25% this year, outpacing the 8% gain in the S&P 500. The sector has been helped by improving economic conditions, steepening yield curve. But analysts see even more levers for growth. We're only halfway through the rally, Matt O'Connor over at Deutsche Bank wrote in a recent note. He sees earnings per share increasing by as much as 20% in 2023 and 2024, and stocks gaining as much as 50% over the next two to three years. I 100% agree with this outlook, but I'm going to explain why, and uh, my view is a bit different. But again, when you see other data points that are lining up with your core thesis, and then you look at the um, other side of the argument and, and you, you can invalidate it, uh, that's, that's valuable information. So he's also saying here, banks will continue to benefit from the things that have helped them this year. He expects loan growth will be a key driver of results in the back half of the year as the economy is on firmer footing. He went on to note that a 10% jump in loan growth adds about roughly 8% to banks' earnings. The sector generally needs to see a full percentage point increase in interest rates to see a similar impact in earnings. So that's uh, really positive to see. And Deutsche Bank's not the only one. Goldman also issued a bullish note on the sector. Now, if you remember in the summer when I was pounding the table, no one wanted to hear it. When Wells Fargo's 23 to 25 bucks, now everyone's getting on board. So that, that's why we have to, that's why I said for the last few weeks we have to take a rest. And we have to a large extent. We've consolidated some of the gains. So we'll see when we're gonna make that next move higher. But for sure, by the end of the year, these stocks are gonna be at new highs. All of them, some of them already are. Um, the other thing is banks also faced restrictions on buybacks and dividend payouts last year as the Federal Reserve wanted banks to conserve capital. But the Fed last month said it was looking to ease those restrictions uh, by June when they have their annual stress test. And, and that was the basis of the article. So great note by Carlton English. And that came out uh, just two days ago. Next, uh, this might be the best economy ever okay so that <laughs> those headlines are the ones you have to worry a little bit about but uh, uh they're pointing to the service and manufacturing growth which we'll cover later certainly these numbers have been off the chart this is by al root and uh, that's positive and that's why one of the reasons why i think these earnings are still very very conservative and uh, when you get back to trend growth versus measuring the multiples off of trough uh, the market's going to look like it's much more reasonably priced than it does right now. We talked about the fast food companies not being able to hire. Moving on to some cyclicals, Shell is showing now good fundamentals. They started to discount it ahead of time. Now they're showing, showing the numbers. Uh, Shell to turn first oil production profit since the pandemic. Um, next, BP was actually able to... Uh, BP signals recovery for oil industry in the wake of the pandemic. The energy giant says strong trading results and higher oil prices are likely to help it hit a debt reduction target early, paving the way for share buybacks. So you remember this cycle is going to be different. Uh, last cycle, every penny they got, they put right back into the ground and um, where money goes to die. This cycle, every penny that they're going to pull out in free cash, for the most part, they're going to return to shareholders. 
through buybacks and dividends and uh, this is just a sign of things to come as the market's demanding it um, so that's that this is the article on IHOP you know this is a conflicting uh, thing here it says investors big and small are driving stock gains with borrowed money this past year rally has been boosted by Robinhood day traders and big investment firms so they're basically saying margin debt is the highest in a decade um, uh, investors borrowed a record 814 billion against their portfolios you know it, again this is uh, very conflicting data because um, it makes headlines in a week when you had Bill Wang effectively it looks like wipe out 20 billion dollars of wealth overnight um, but at the same time while you have record margin debt you also have a record um, uh, capitalization. So it's 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 debt relative to what you know. If the if if margin debt is up basically double and off the lows in 2009, and the stock market is up, you know, eight uh, set no seven, just a little less than seven call it six times, six, six and a half times off the low, then effectively mar margin debt is lower than it was at the bottom as a percentage basis of to total market capitalization. So this is a really misleading table that you have to be careful of. So what they're effectively saying, and it's reflected in the four and a half trillion on the sidelines, is that, you know, in 2009, margin debt as a percentage of total capitalization was dramatically higher than it is today if the market's up six and a half times and margin debt's only double then um effectively margin debt is dramatically low and people are cautious that that would be a better way to write this and a better way to uh, represent the message so be careful when you're looking at things like that al root from uh barons put put out this table that shows the um, American jobs plan numbers. This is from William Bear analyst Nicholas Heyman. This just gives you a visual of where the 2.3 trillion is going. The biggest number has nothing to do with roads and bridges. It's called personal care enhancement. That's $400 billion. Houses and buildings are $213 billion, so that's good. That's some construction. Utilities are $100 billion. That's high-speed high broadband. Electric vehicles, that's going to be the um, charging stations. And subsidies, that's going to be $174 billion. So they're going to put up, uh, I think, another four hundred. dollars uh, What do they add? 150,000 charging stations. They want to go to 500,000. So that'll employ a lot of electricians and some construction. Um, electric grid and clean energy that's going to go to utilities 100 billion so it just gives you an idea of where this is going it's obviously a lot different than what you think of when you think of an infrastructure package but uh 20 of the package going to hard infrastructure is better than zero so that's that this shows uh, this is from patrick dehan this shows the gasoline demand percentage change year on year uh, you know you can just see it driving i mean th this week is the first time i'm sitting in traffic down in tampa up in connecticut uh, all over so um that that's good stuff to see with the vaccines this is another interesting note out by barons lawrence strauss dividends have bounced back their recovery can continue 
Dividend health, which took a major turn for the worst last year due to the pandemic, continued to improve in the first quarter. Uh, John Tobin, a portfolio manager at Epic Investment Partners, says the earnings outlook is brightening, so the dividend outlook is brightening. The first three months of 2021, 120 S&P 500 index companies announced dividend increases compared to 91 in the fourth quarter, according to Dow Jones Indices. The number of increases was not far below last year's first quarter result of 126, and the average S&P company dividend hike in the quarter was 11.1% versus 9% in the same period a year earlier. So this is coming back, and the beauty of this is that the game hasn't even begun because banks are an enormous source of dividends and dividend growth, and they've been in the penalty box. That's going to change in the next few months at, in June after the annual stress test tests. So uh, it's amazing to see them back at Q1 uh, uh, pre-pandemic levels. So that's that. We saw job openings were at their near uh, pre-pandemic levels this week. Um, you know, and we're just we're just seeing that uh, 6.7 million private sector job openings in February. Um, and then you've got a negative thing. People were out talking about the 50 cent option traders now in the market bought 200,000 contracts via block trades of um, VIX call options Thursday morning with a wager that the VIX will rise towards 40 and won't be lower than 25 in July, up from about 17, the level where it currently trades. The trader appears to have made several block trades totaling about 200,000 contracts. That's almost as big as the daily volume of the VIX calls based on the 20-day average. So, uh, you know, they think it's this 50 cent trader who had been right a couple of times in the past, uh, but not all the time, by the way, that's number one. Number two, it tends to be many months where they accumulate these positions, which I think it would be natural for us to get a pullback in, you know, in a few months. And it could be after it hits Tom Lee's 42 or 4300 target or or uh, Tom DeMarc's 4139 target, you know. It's all arbitrary. The key is the market has run a lot, but you could see the market correct five or ten percent. Uh, I don't think it's going to be that material, as a matter of fact, and I'm going to talk about why in a minute. Um, but at the same time, you could see defensive sectors, not defense and aerospace, defensive sectors like utilities, like staples, and like big pharma actually rally in the face of VIX jumping up and the market coming down, you know, three, four, 5%, you could see staples and utilities jump in that type of period, which sounds counterintuitive, but that's where money goes to hide in those environments and that could be a catalyst. So I look at this as a very positive based on how we're positioned, uh, but I wouldn't, you know, these type of headlines get people under the table and that's why they have to chase up 5% later after they missed it because they misinterpret uh, the data. Um, Fed Kaskari said variants are the biggest risk for recovery. You know, everyone agrees with that. But I think at the pace we're vaccinating, we're probably getting ahead of much of that. There will be booster shots. There'll be variants. It's probably going to be like the annual flu. There'll be a new shot every year to try to guess which variant we're going to have to deal with. Hopefully it won't be, but I think that's kind of the direction it's pointing, which will also be good for uh, big pharma. And uh, that's that. Now, as far as oil, it's shown a little weakness. We had anticipated in recent weeks, if you've been on the call, they should breathe uh, for some time after the record move that they had. 
this year and since the election. Uh, one of the overhangs in the market, despite a crude draw this week of three and a half million barrels, um, well, you had you, you had some product builds, which we'll talk about, but is that the U.S. is going to roll over and uh, Iran's going to be able to start pumping again uh, on the U.S.-Iran deal. And that's probably going to be an overhang until we get some color on that. Uh, if that supply comes onto the market in a major way, it will be a short-term headwind. But then you'll have OPEC uh, probably adjusting to deal with that. So um, it's just going to be a push-pull until we have some greater clarity on that. Moving right along um, to our article of the week, which we put out this morning, the Van Morrison Into the Mystic Stock Market and Sentiment Results. Uh, in recent weeks, we've talked about the concept of crosswinds in the market, and rather than focusing on the general indices, it was paramount to concentrate on sector rotation and rallies under the surface. There's no better song than Van Morrison's Into the Mystic to embody the navigation of crosswinds that a sailor must face in his or her journey to and fro. And uh, let yourself... So, yeah, when that foghorn blows, I will be coming home. Yeah, when that foghorn blows, I want to hear it. I don't have to fear it. So the point is, <clears throat> he's, you know, there are a few ways to interpret the song, but the basic thing is he's coming home to his love, and he hears the foghorn, and he knows he's there. Uh, people take it also to mean it's like the foghorn of life, but that's getting too... Uh, uh, dreary for what we want to talk about today. Um, so I pointed to the October 15th article we put out with this long-term uh, energy sector chart when it was trading at you know $29 and we knew the foghorn was was blowing to sail home to the energy sector and sure enough in the last few months since it's up 102 percent. Um, it seemed counterintuitive to buy energy when the world was in a pandemic, the economy in a recession, and an election that pointed to a full frontal attack on the sector. So why did it work, and why will it continue to work for the next few years? Well, one, beginning of a new business cycle, we can't reemphasize that enough. But Jamie Dimon, in his annual letter to shareholders this week, uh, came out yesterday, covered it, said it better than anyone could possibly say. And he's basically acknowledging climate change, acknowledging that coal, oil, and natural gas are the primary sources of GHG, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. But he says they've powered the world's energy and economy for decades, advancing significant economic growth and social development for billions around the world. By the way, more important, it's raised billions of people out of poverty. It couldn't have been done without steady source of energy. And we're still not there on renewables. We will get there, and he makes the case. But he's also saying... Um, the challenge we face is, he says, our reliance on these resources now threatens the growth they've enabled. The challenge is significant. While continuing to generate power for all our needs, big and small, lighting and heating our homes, continue commuting to work, charging our phones and computers, as well as operating manufacturing facilities, which can't be done with renewables yet. Um, we also need to bring energy to the nearly 800 million people who still don't have reliable access to energy. You know, the number one killer in Africa is actually um, inhalation, smoke inhalation because the vast majority are still using biomass to heat their homes and cook their food and they're dying from smoke inhalation because they don't have regular energy sources and uh, a, a good bulk of that is going to have to be delivered if we want to lift close to a billion people out of poverty through fossil fuels um, for these people to 
have social mobility and um, experience all the wealth that we've been able to experience in the uh, developed world. Unless we close the door behind us, then they're screwed. So it's a push-pull thing. And he says, the fact is, we're long past debating whether climate change is real, but we need to acknowledge that the solution is not as simple as walking away from fossil fuels. We will need resources such as oil and natural gas until commercial, affordable, and low-carbon alternatives can be developed to meet all of our global energy needs. This is where business and government leaders need to focus their time and attention. Here's what he says. While wind and solar technologies have made huge strides, they're principally deployed for electricity generation. We don't have clean alternatives for industrial and manufacturing energy needs, for example, nor do we yet have the solutions for heavy transportation, such as trucking and air travel, which is part of our thesis for the second half, both on aerospace and defense, is uh, the commercial aviation recovery, as well as the energy sector and uh, demand for jet fuel. Um, the projected growth of technologies like electric fuels is going to place huge pressures on the need for rare earth minerals, which, by the way, are mined with fossil fuels, uh, which also pre presents geopolitical and environmental challenges. When we cut through all the noise, here's what we know to be true. Traditional energy resources play an essential role in our global economy today. We can agree on the need to make our energy system much less carbon intensive, but abandoning the companies that produce and consume these fuels is not a solution. Furthermore, it's economically counterproductive. Instead, we must work with them. Uh, that's a huge opportunity. Uh, da, 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 da. That's why we made a commitment in 2020 to align our financing activities in three carbon intensive sectors, oil and gas, electric power, and automotive manufacturing with the Paris Agreement. So uh, so that was that. Now, moving on to banks. Um, okay, when Wells Fargo was trading between $23 to $25 in mid-July, I was on CNBC London, you can click on the link, laying out the bull case for the dividend cut they had just implemented while everyone else was dumping it as fast as they could. Why did it make sense to sail, quote, into the mystic with banks when no one wanted to touch them with a 10-foot pole? This is very important because I've told you when to get in, and that's been a home run. Now the question is when you get out. Um, so it comes down to this chart. This is the ratio of the two-year to the 10-year treasury spread. We've shown it many times over the last 12 months. You sell banks when this ratio falls to zero. That's right down here. It's called an inversion. <coughs> so... Um, you can see it in 2007 and you could see it in 2019. That was the peak in this green line, which is the XLF, the financial sector. So where are we now? We're nowhere close. So you sell the banks when the ratio falls to inversion. That's when credit is choked off and banks have hit their maximum credit extension for the cycle. You buy banks after the crash and the Fed lowers rates to steepen the ratio once again. So here's what's happened. It's steepened dramatically, but we're nowhere near the next inversion, which may be many years off. And while banks have rallied dramatically, some up 75, some up 100%, some up a lot more, um, th this is many, many years away when we're gonna get the next inversion. So when those analysts are talking on a fundamental basis of what their guessing earnings are gonna be three years out, all you need to do is look at the yield curve and it tells you the whole story and um, so, yeah, guess what? You had a similar rally from 2009 to 2010. Then you, you're going to have 10 and 20% corrections after a 75 to 100% move. But these things doubled and tripled over the next few years. Same thing in 2003 to 2007. Uh, you got the steepening, you bought. 
you got these five and 10% corrections, and then you got the inversion you needed to get the hell out once it inverted, that was the top. Once it inverted, that was the top. We are nowhere near the next inversion, and that's why in our view, you'll see five and 10% and maybe more corrections, but we're nowhere near. These things have so much gasoline in the tank. Uh, we will peel off on the way up as they become too large a position in our portfolio. We will ride through 10 and 15% corrections on the way, but some of these things can double and plus from here, even after already doubling. So, um, so that that's the basis uh, I wanted to talk about because they're up 75, 100%. Some people feel they missed it. Yeah, you may get a 10 or 20% pullback, uh, and you probably will get a few, but when you want to dump is when you're nearing the next inversion and we're just starting uh we just started the steepening that will go sideways for a number of years sideways for a while it starts to go down toward inversion that's when you get the rally believe it or not when the, when the yield curve actually the ratio starts to compress and then uh you know when to get out when it's at zero is 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 the top so i uh, hope that's helpful now uh so we covered that ba -ba -bum. so and then we ended it uh I, i'll i'll peel some off on the way up as it become too large a portion of the portfolio but it ain't over until the yield curve inverts and there's a picture of the famous lady singing at the end of the opera but that's called yield curve inversion and we're years off from that we just had it in 2019 and that was the peak and then um they crashed the Fed stepped in, that's when you buy, and uh, so we'll, we'll look for the next inversion to be just laying off everything. In the meantime, we'll take some profits on the way up to keep them in a reasonable size as they continue to appreciate. All right, on uh, February 25th and March 4th, we emphasized we were loading up on utility staples and big pharma. Why was the foghorn blowing for these three groups? So you can see they're up meaningfully in the last five weeks with the laggard being big pharma. Like all quality market calls, they're usually predicated on rates. Our view was that the rate of change in the 10-year yield was so aggressive that if the market didn't rectify on its own, squeezing the overcrowded hedge fund bond short, we covered that in the Commitment of Traders report in recent weeks, <clears throat> the Fed would step in and jawbone, moving their purchases further out on the curve, yield curve control like they did in uh, April of 2011, started jawboning it by the time they implemented it in the fall, uh, they had already achieved their, their goal from jawboning, uh, and that was yield stopped going up, and they rolled over, actually. Um, so if the market didn't solve itself on its own, the Fed would have done it through jawboning, and here's what's happened to the 10-year yield since. It went, you know, from February through early March, up 170, uh, from 100 to 175 basis points. Since then, it's gone sideways for the last three weeks. And today it got down to the bottom end of the range at 161 basis points for the 10 year yield. And this, this visual just shows it best from straight up to sideways consolidation the last three and a half, three plus weeks. And that's when utilities, pharma, um, um staples have all done well your yield sensitive and tech finally got a bounce uh tech got crushed as this was happening in february through mid-march now tech has started to get a bounce as these things have normalized as well uh lower conviction than staples utilities and pharma but certainly there will be pockets that run hard and uh and that's an opportunity that we started discussing last week so where crystal balls are scarce, a few gray hairs will suffice. You just got to see it and live it. 
uh, make the mistakes and make the wins and and uh, and learn from your losses over time, and that makes you better and better uh, with with a few gray hairs, and and that's a good thing. Um, you know, it's it's like what was the story? I think Andy Serwer wrote an article about Kathy Woods. He says it's a three-decade overnight success story. You know, everyone thinks she got $40 billion of assets overnight, but she's been in the game for 40 years. It's what she learned through experience over 40 years that all of a sudden everything came together at once and she went from, you know, very small to overnight monster. And regardless of what happens from here, she already uh, she already hit the window and, and just did a tremendous thing. So, um Okay, so it's become harder and harder to find value in the short term. We think the laggard of our recent initiative, utility stable in pharma, big pharma will have the biggest near-term performance in coming months. Our biggest two there have been Novartis and Pfizer. Uh, we've covered that in recent weeks. Again, this is all opinion, not advice. Click on terms at hedgefundtips.com. Um, you know, talk to a financial advisor first. I'm just telling you what we do uh, and whether that fits for your needs is, is, is uh, only you can know that with your own financial advisor and situation, age, characteristics, etc. Other groups, energy, banks, defense, and aerospace have taken a breather as anticipated and will likely make new highs before the year end. Um, we covered the long short uh, funds underperformance last month and why the institutional cash on the sidelines. Um, so while it has gotten harder to find value after the large runner-up, it's difficult to get too bearish with M2 money supply up 27% year-on-year, fiscal stimulus at $5.3 trillion plus another 2 to 3 on the way. Couple that with an accommodative Fed, and you'll find it hard to play the short side in a meaningful way. Now, this is very important and new. This market environment most closely resembles the environments of 2013 and 2017, the green lines below. Uh, that kept everyone, they, both relentless grinds higher were preceded by aggressive crashes. That's the red circles followed by the green lines. Red circles, green lines. Red circles, green lines. Um, so after these type of crashes, everyone was looking in the rearview mirror waiting for the next shoe to drop like hedge funds being underexposed to cyclicals. They're not fully believing it. They'll have to chase in and that will make them the new growth stocks in coming months. Uh, while reluctantly being forced to buy up and chase their benchmarks, it's no different this time. And believe it or not, um, you know, it, it's early days in this type of cycle. In the 2017, it went about two years. 2013, it went about two, two and a half years. And we're only basically from this breakout about a half a year in. And that's in line with Jamie Dimon saying this could go to 2023 20, plus uh, before meaningful correction. The other thing that I put under here, which was interesting, is the skew. Uh, uh, if if you think there's uniform euphoria in the market, the da our data shows otherwise. If you followed me for some time, you know I refer to option skew on a regular basis. In simple terms. VIX measures the cost and demand or implied volatility of insurance, S&P puts, at the money, uh, while SKU measures the cost demand or implied volatility of tail risk insurance. That's deep out of the money S&P puts. So the cost of out of the money insurance, which is a two plus standard deviation move from the mean. While this is not a comprehensive definition, it's an easy way to think about it to get the general idea. Right now, the demand for tail risk insurance is high. 
Um, you, you know, VIX is low, it's dropped under 20, I think it was at 17 or whatever it is, but the, the tail risk hedging out big drops of 10% or more, uh, the demand and the cost is up. And that's concerning, but it's also a sign that many players don't believe this rally. And that wall of worry continues to be climbed. But if I were a betting man, I'd be on the lookout for a scenario where the market does breathe, but it does not pay off these tail risk buyers simply because there's too many of them. Uh, so for those of you on the podcast, you're going to get cut off in about 30 seconds. Just go to hedgefundtips.com, click on the video cast, fast forward to minute 60 on the YouTube video, and you'll pick up word for word where we left off. And you'll also be able to see some of the charts that I've been referencing that you'll find very helpful. So for the sports gamblers, this is the equivalent of a situation where your team wins, but you lose the bet because the spread was too wide. And that's exactly what we're talking about here about the market can take a breather three 